And it was like through my adventures at these cafes, I started to see like these sustainable straws in the drinks. And one time I saw like a green straw in my drink and I was like, what is this thing? Why have I never seen it before? So I started to kind of, I took a picture of it and then I started researching it. And then I asked the person, I was like, what is this made of? And they were telling me that it was like a grass straw. It was made from grass. And I was like, grass doesn't look like this. Like, what are you talking about? And then I had to look it up online. I was like, man, I am ignorant. Like grass is not just flat and like short that we see in like, you know, Canada or the US. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Marina Tran Vu is the founder and CEO of Equo, a Vietnam-founded sustainable brand providing 100% plastic-free and compostable solutions for everyday single-use plastics like straws, utensils, and even the food containers you use. Equo's products are made from materials like grass, rice, coconut, sugarcane, and coffee, things you can actually pronounce and have probably eaten before. They've raised over $1.3 million for their seed round and have been featured in global media like Forbes, Shark Tank Vietnam, Front Office by Player CV in the US, and of course, Backscoop. I love this conversation. I really appreciate Marina's transparency and honesty about her personal life and journey, both on the, the startup side, how it was to build her business and career, but really especially on the personal side. If you want a real look at what it's like to be a founder, especially the tough life of a solo founder, this is the episode for you. You don't want to miss it. Marina grew up in Canada and then she made her way to Vietnam and totally started from scratch and it's just incredible to see. Plus, she has an awesome and fun personality, so apart from the honesty, the things to learn, you're also going to have a lot of fun listening. Hi, Marina. So nice to get to know you and speak with you today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I spent a lot of time looking into you. I feel like I already got to know you a lot more through LinkedIn, but I got to dive into a lot more when I got to search about you. I feel like something I've discovered speaking with people in Southeast Asia, it's always super random. Some people have a lot about them and some have totally nothing on them. But with you, I feel like everything was full of color. But I think I want to go all the way back since you're Vietnamese, but you grew up mostly in Canada. I want to hear more about what it was like when you moved to Canada or when you were born there and your early childhood there, if you're, if you're happy to share. Yeah, absolutely. So I was actually born in a little city called Calgary in Canada. It's kind of more in the I guess, rural part of Canada, but it was too cold for my parents. My parents actually got kind of placed there after they had immigrated during the Vietnam War. So they were refugees sponsored over by the government and they both happened to land in Calgary. They worked there for a little bit and then when they were able to kind of like graduate university, uh, they moved me and my sister who was like a year older than me over to Vancouver. And that's kind of where everything really started. I grew up in Vancouver. I grew up in the Vancouver East Side. 
So that's where a lot of immigrants are. You know, it wasn't a very kind of wealthy area. It was quite a poor area. And at the time, it was a little bit dangerous, too, because there was a lot of you know, gangs and like, you know, what you kind of expect from low income neighborhoods. And so that's really where I grew up. And yeah, it, it taught me a lot, to be honest with you, because when you grow up and you're, you know, really poor, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, it teaches you a lot. So at one point we were living in like a basement, all sharing a room. And then at one point we were living in the back of like a store <laughs> where there was just like a mattress. And so I kind of learned early on how to appreciate things I think um, and obviously I learned a lot about entrepreneurship too because my mom was like the first entrepreneur in my family to kind of try to get us out of the poverty that we were living in at the time so that was kind of my experience growing up. When you were growing up do you have any core memories from that time? Anything that really influenced your sticks to you today? Yeah um, I would say probably the biggest thing was like I definitely grew up knowing like I would say the power of education, the power of, you know, trying to build a a good life for yourself and trying to build that for your family. And really uh, the power of like, you know, trying to get a good job and working really, really hard. You know, when I was growing up, it wasn't the best circumstances. My parents, they woke up, I think every day at like five or 6am to open the business. They were running like a tax accounting business. And they woke up every single morning to just try to do that, try to make ends meet. They were actually working part-time sometimes at like a bakery or like another sort of manufacturing facility while they were doing that business as well. So that kind of really taught me a lot about like working really hard. And then also, I I just, I think I learned a lot when I was in school. Unfortunately, I was bullied when I was a lot younger (laughs) because I wore the same purple sweater. I remember it was like a same purple gap sweater every single day. And when you, when you wear it every single day, kids start to notice, right? And they're like, oh, why don't you have anything else to wear? And so I got a little bit bullied because of that. And so I think that made me and, and like I asked my sister and my family also try to be like, yo, we got to work harder. We got to get ourselves out of this kind of poverty to try to hopefully build a better life for ourselves. So that was like a really, really distinct memory for me is, is that like mention of that purple gap sweater. <laughs> I still remember it had like diamonds on it too. So. When you had that experience, how old were you, sort of the the bullying? Oh, I was like grade, sorry, not not grade. Um, I was six. I remember because it was like, I believe, first grade. And it was actually also before I got given my English name. So at the time, you know, I had a Vietnamese name. My Vietnamese name was Ngoc. So it's N-G-O-C. But, you know, kids in Canada, when I went to school, they pronounced it like Ngoc. <laughs> And so they would actually make fun of me and be like, knock, knock, who's there? And so at first I was like, okay, you know, it was okay. But then I started to like get really sad about it because they would always make fun of me because of that. So that was a little bit, it was like, okay, my Vietnamese name, they were making fun of. And then afterwards, like the clothes and everything else kind of started to happen too. And then uh, that, yeah, that kind of triggered that at that age. So around six years old. But then at the time, you sort of all as a family wanted to really get out of the situation. And that's when you were six. But I think I also read that when you were 11, you guys were able to move to a new neighborhood. You probably went to a new school. So that's actually a really short amount of time, five years to really get out. Yeah, it it was. But I would say that it was just like prior to that, like we were like I was living 
like in very, very poor neighborhoods and in really not great circumstances since I was born. Like we didn't, you know, we didn't eat a lot of great stuff. Like we just ate rice, (laughs) rice and sometimes with eggs if we had it. Like I, I do remember a lot of that. We had a lot of like instant noodles. So the mama noodles, those were kind of a staple in our house. But I think we lived like that for quite a while. So the first like 11 years of my life, it was like that. We were all sharing one bedroom. And then it was like when I was 11 is when we actually had enough money to finally buy our own like house. My parents finally saved up enough. Right? But that was years of scrimping and saving wherever possible. Like I used to go to, I think I remember going to birthday parties and re-gifting basically gifts that I got given because I couldn't afford to bring like buy a new gift for a lot of the birthday parties. And I do remember my parents as well, like they were just saving wherever possible. Like we would buy clothes from the Salvation Army just to wear to school, like, you know, so it was 11 hard years of that first before we kind of were able to get out of it. Then how did it what, like, what was the change after you guys moved? Did you go to a new school? And then what was sort of the environment for you? And given that experience, what did you plan to do next? I feel like, you know, at six, you guys had the goal of getting out. What was after that? Yeah, I would say, I guess the, the biggest thing was I still actually continued school. So in Vancouver, in Canada, from kindergarten to like grade four, you can kind of go to a a younger elementary school, um, if you may. But usually elementary school is from kindergarten all the way to grade seven. And then after grade seven, you go into high school, grade eight to grade 12. So from kindergarten to grade seven, or up until I was 12 or 13, around there, is when I stayed in the same school. And at the time, we were in probably one of the worst districts. And I was actually supposed to go to one of the worst high schools at the time in all of Vancouver, all of the lower, lower Vancouver side. So in order for my parents to actually get me to a better school, because the the school that you go to is really dependent on the neighborhood you live in, unless you take a certain test and you can to get yourself into like a special program in that school. So my parents were hell bent moving us to much nicer neighborhood just so we can go to a better high school. And so that happened literally when I was in grade 11 and my sister was, sorry, when my sister, when I was 11 and my sister was 12. So right before my sister was supposed to go to high school, we moved over to a new district. And so that was kind of the goal and that was the, the propelling point. And then after we finished our last year, our seventh grade, then we moved to a completely new school, new neighborhood where we didn't really have any friends from our old school there in order to get us to a much better high school. So that's really kind of what propelled things. And then I guess for myself, after seeing my parents work so hard to move us from like, you know, the east side of Vancouver to like a much nicer part of Vancouver where I could go to a better school. Like I just learned very, 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 like from there on, like I have to do well in school. I have to like, you know, keep going and and hopefully get a much better paying job, you know, let my parents sacrifice be worthwhile. So. After you guys moved over, did your parents continue their tax business and focus on it full time? What was the path for them after? Actually, I'm, I'm super curious. What did they do after they were able to buy the house? Yeah, so they actually still run the business today. So it's been, I think, like 30 years that my parents were in business. And you no, know, I think after they achieved that, they just wanted to continue, you know, working and continue doing that because, you know, obviously... You can move yourself to a better neighborhood, but there's always that, I think, fear when you have been poor, really, really poor at one point that you never want to go back to that situation. So I think for my parents, it was always like, continue, continue, continue. 
but now obviously I think they they've done really well enough. And, you know, my sister and I were, we're now grown adults, so they don't have to really worry about that anymore. And now they just work because they love it. Like, you know, it's like their life mission, my mom and my dad, they say the same thing. They, they love what they do. They love the work. There's no reason why they want to stop. And so I don't think they'll ever stop until, until they get like, you know, really old where, where like, you know, they can't do the job anymore. So. Before they immigrated to Canada, what were your parents doing? Because I think there are lots of sort of immigrants who come from their home countries who are super well educated. Maybe they're doctors, they're lawyers, they have how many degrees? But then after they immigrate, they have to go to college again or sort of start from zero again. Who were your parents sort of before they immigrated? They were students. So they were they were quite young. They were in their early 20s, both of my parents. And they were uh, both in university at the time. And so when the war broke out, like, you know, I think they didn't really have much. They just honestly just got transferred to different areas. So my dad, unfortunately, he got put into a camp in Cambodia and then in Indonesia. And then my mom, she got moved to Thailand before she got to, she fled to, to Thailand before she came to Canada too. So they got moved around for a good like year or so before they came over to Canada, but they were both students. So they, they didn't really come to Canada with a lot of skills and, and anything like that. So that's why they were working part-time at like, you know, bakeries and manufacturing while they were going to school at the same time too. So they also sort of really started their lives in Canada as well, like our adult lives. Yeah, pretty much. And, you know, like I hear a lot of the stories from, from my parents, you know, my mom and my dad, especially, they were separated from all their siblings and they both have huge families, like over 10 kids in each family. And they were separated from all their brothers and sisters at some point or another. Some they had to leave back in Vietnam. Some they were sent to different countries in, you know, France or Australia or wherever else or the, the States. And so they had to find each other much later. And, and they just basically started their lives all over again, even again, not speaking English or anything. They had to learn everything from scratch. And sort of take me a little into your family. I'm really curious. If you were to tell your parents you admired one thing about each of them, what, what would they be? Oh, gosh. So the first thing I would say is, for my dad, I would say that I admire his tenacity. So my dad helped my mom build the the accounting business. He actually built the software for it. He was programming. And a big thing I remember is my dad would literally not sleep. He would be in like this tiny, tiny like closet that he converted to like a working space to program. And he would be programming literally like day and night. I did not see him sleep. And there were days when he would not sleep for like three hours. And we would just like, you know, me and my sister would sometimes bring him like plates and food, but he was just so focused on getting things done because he had to build those programs before the tax season started. And so tenacity is one big thing that I learned from my dad for sure. And then for my mom, it's just like, I just learned how to be superwoman. Like my mom wasn't just, you know, my mom, she was, she was like my mom and she was running the tax business and she was learning everything and she was doing all that at the same time. So she made sure that we were always like, you know, fed that, you know, she spent time with us wherever she could. And she was also working. So like, I learned how to, like the definition of hard work and being like a superwoman and being able to multitask basically from her. So like this is where like you know nowadays people are like oh you can't you can't really have a career and a family and be happy and stuff and I take a look at my mom and I'm like yeah well she did it all so I'm sure it's possible and it's even more impressive because she helped take a family from where you know from where they were 
up until where you guys are today. I mean, you and your sister went to great universities and your, your parents are still working in Canada with the same business that they kept alive. And I think that that's really impressive looking back. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I would say the biggest thing too is like just the maintenance of her like attitude too. Like we went through some really, really, really tough times, but my mom is like, I don't know. Like people say a lot that my personality is like my mom, where like she's just naturally very bubbly and happy. And like, despite everything she went through and all the hardships, she still has that personality. And she's still like a very, very like engaging, positive person. And so that's something I really admire that she was able to do that still, despite everything that she went through. And I'd like to go go back to you. So once you got to university, what were your plans? What major did you want to do? Did you know what you wanted to do after university? Did you not? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know what? For my sister, she knew exactly what she wanted to do. Like when she was in high school, she's like, I'm going to finance and I'm going to make a ton of money. That's where I, I love. I love stocks. I love finance. And she went there. And so now she's like a you know, uh, she works in, in finance in like New York City right now doing bonds trading or something like that. I don't know, something very financy, <laughs> like in bank. <laughs> Whereas myself, oh my gosh, in high school, I like told myself I wanted to do a whole bunch of things. At first, I wanted to be a fashion designer. <laughs> you know, I was like, I really want to go into fashion and design. And at the time, my parents were like, nope, that's not what you're doing. You are not doing that. <laughs> I was like, all right, okay. And then I was like, you know what? I want to go into law. I would, I think I'd be really, really great at law. But my parents also didn't want me to go over to Ontario and study because that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to go to Queen's University at the time and study law. And they're like, nope, there's a perfectly great university here locally in Vancouver called UBC. So you're going there. And after that, I was like, okay, you know what? I'll just go there. But what am I going to do? And I was like, okay, maybe I'll go into like, you know, just like get a regular arts degree. And my, my sister and my family were like, nope, uh, if you don't know what you want to do, just go into business first and then you can always figure it out later. So I basically just followed my sister into the Sauter School of Business at the time. And I went there and I was like, okay, I don't even know what I'm going to do. So my first and second year, I'll be honest, I hated it. I hated business. And I was like, I don't want to do this. I'm just here to get the degree. <laughs> and then hopefully I'll figure out something. So I tried out everything. I tried accounting because my mom did it. I tried finance because my sister did it. Hated both. <laughs> and then I found marketing in third year. And then that's when I was like, okay, this is actually pretty interesting. So no, none of it was ever planned. I just happened to fall into it for some reason. And, and so marketing just kind of became the thing I, I did after I realized I liked it. Then what were you like in university outside of the, you know, the degree? <laughs> was that where you got into dancing? Or was that you know what? Like, I, I didn't do a little bit of dancing. So a lot of people didn't know this and uh, they don't. And so it's kind of a little embarrassing. But before the whole like K-pop thing was a huge thing. And this is like, I'm going to age myself right now. But this is back in 2006, right? I was like, you know, I don't know what I want to do, but I like dancing. So I would like dance. I never actually went out to, to take like dance classes. I would like, you know, dancing at home by myself and practicing. And I actually auditioned to be part of a K-pop group. Um, it actually turned out to be for a company called Pletus Entertainment and K-pop and for this. Oh, I've uh, heard group. of that company. I don't know which yeah, group they yeah, are so from, I but at least they're popular. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you, you went to a difficult interview. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Um, and then it turned out that that group that was formed afterwards became a group called After School. Yeah, this Korean pop group. So it's all girl group. Um, but I had auditioned for that online and then I passed the auditions and they're like, you got to fly down to LA to do the in-person audition. And I was like, oh my gosh, I got to do this. I asked my parents, they shut it down super quickly. Like, nope, you're not going to have a key bottle. Like, you're, you're not going to LA when you're 19 by yourself. Forget it. Right. And I was like, oh man. So <laughs> that's kind of what I was like. And I was like, you know what? I don't really like school. So I was terrible at school. I never paid attention. Like I was really great in high school, but when I had no motivation first year, second year, I almost flunked out of first year. I like got 64.5%. I failed first year math and you had to have 65% to stay in. But I think it was because one, my sister was like a model student, but two, because they rounded up. Thank God they rounded up. So I (laughs) I stayed in first year. And then second year was the same thing, but I was at least part of a lot of different social clubs. So I enjoyed that a little bit. But my first and second year, I was just doing what most people did. I just partied, got to know people, tried to experience life, and then was trying to figure out what I liked, basically. So I I wasn't great in first and second year. (laughs) But you did almost get into a K-pop group. Almost. (laughs) In an alternate universe, it could have been you. (laughs) Yeah, imagine that, man. If if my life was, I don't know. I don't know what my life would be like if I had gone to that K-pop group. I went that that route, you know? I I think your look sort of works because a lot of them are blonde, right? Like blonde or have brown hair. And I think your hair is blonde most of the time. I think in most of the photos I've seen you in. (laughs) Uh, Funny enough, I wasn't allowed to dye my hair until I got into first year. My parents never let me dye my hair. And the first thing I dyed it was orange. I don't know why. I don't know why I chose that color, but I dyed it orange. (laughs) And then after that, I kept it pretty like normal colors. I would say brown and like, you know, um, some highlights here and there. And then it was only when I first moved to Vietnam and I got out of the corporate world, I said, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to dye my hair pink. And that's what I did. And that's how it continued along this you know, trend of like dyeing my hair. And then finally, I've settled on blonde because I, I just like realized I, I don't want to mess with colors anymore. So, <laughs> <laughs> so then you discovered marketing in third year and then obviously you graduated after fourth year. So how did you get into the world of work? What was your first sort of entry point? (laughs) I would say my first entry point was like every summer, you know, I was interning if I wasn't working at the bank. So I was doing like, you know, a bank teller job part time during school because I I still want to, you know, work and make my own money and like have work experience. So I was doing that while I was in university. And then It was like in third year when I started doing third and fourth year, when I started doing this like marketing research, like assistant sort of thing to like my professor. And that's when I started um, realizing I wanted to explore every single part of like marketing. And so that's how I kind of got into the work world a little bit, just interning a lot. I interned in Hong Kong actually for one year. Then I did exchange for another year in South Korea And then I I just kept on doing work. And then I realized, you know, I'm not going to like school anymore. So I just basically did as many courses as possible. And then I finished school early. And in my last semester, I just decided to intern full time for a marketing agency because everyone said, you know, that's a great place to start. So I started interning at Cassette Communications, finished up my internship there. And I decided I wanted to go to Toronto and 
experience like a different kind of city and work in a different city too. Cause my sister also went to Toronto. So there, there's a little bit of a pattern here. I'm following my sister wherever she goes pretty much. Uh, <laughs> so I went to Toronto. I interviewed at the same company to get a full-time job. And then uh, they offered me a job and I just picked up and I moved over. And so that's really what launched my career there. And then it opened up this whole like slew of opportunities and companies I could work for in Toronto. I think what I found interesting about your previous jobs is that you actually worked for a lot of different products. So I think you did like hair care products and then later on you went into alcoholic products. What is it like actually like working in marketing for a lot of different products, especially like alcohol? Yeah, you know, it was very interesting. And, you know, that's the thing I love about marketing or at least working in consumer packaged goods. At that time for me, just working on different products meant you have a lot of different marketing tactics. So like the way you market to women, for example, because I was working in hair care, I was working at Unilever on Dove, the way you kind of utilize all the insights, the way you market to them, even the channels you market to them and what they are receptive to is very, very different from beverage alcohol, right? Beverage alcohol is more of an entertainment occasion. You can say hair care is more of like a daily need. So that I found very, very interesting. And then beyond that, I think it was just the fact that you get to target so many different people and get to understand people's mindsets, like the way like a child thinks, like I worked in like, you know, children's toy at one point, the way a child thinks is very, very different from the way, you know, a female in her thirties thinks and what they like to, to see in advertising, what they like to see in their marketing, how they think, how they like respond to price, how they, who is actually making the purchase decision for them. Those all, all those things really vary when you look at different segments. So I think that experience was really valuable because it taught me to be a little bit more versatile in thinking about how different people will respond to different things. And I would say in general, like it just gave you different experiences. So when you're in consumer packaged goods, for the most part, I had very traditional experiences. So at the time, it's like, you know, in-store advertising, maybe you'll do a print ad, maybe you'll do some digital ads. Whereas in alcohol, a lot of it is about events and PR and showing off that lifestyle. And so with that being said, you're learning a lot of different tactics. I focused a lot more on PR and events when I was in alcohol and in regular CPG, I focused a lot more on traditional mediums like, you know, digital and and print. So that kind of gave me a lot of different experiences as well. And something I wanted to ask about is like, how did you end up back in Vietnam? Did you follow your sister back to Vietnam? Uh, no. So that was actually a very, very big difference. So after my sister went to like Toronto, she was there for like le- like a year or less. And then she popped over and moved, moved to New York because um, they gave her an opportunity there. And then she's just stayed there ever since. So like I think New York, she fell in love with that place. But for myself, I was in Toronto for eight years and I probably honestly, like I had everything set up for myself. I probably would have just stayed in Toronto for a very, very long time, except for, um, you know, a, a really big thing happened in our family. My, my father, he got sick. He got diagnosed with late stage lung cancer. And basically that kind of changed the full dynamics of our, our family, right? What were we going to do? How are we going to plan for this? you know, in like, you know, very dire scenarios. And so that's actually what drove me to pick up a move over to Vietnam. First off, it got me thinking like, man, I don't like the fact that I have to book off vacation time to spend more time with my family. My family needs me, you know? So at the time it was like a little bit more restrictive. You didn't have things like work from home or work away, you know, um, remotely. And so 
I wanted to be there for my family. And then I realized like, you know, my career is great, but I, I need to take some time off for my family. And so that's what I did. And when we got together as a family, we decided that I would pick up and move to Vietnam just because like, you know, my family had a little bit of a, a side business here and we had to get some legal paperwork done in the case that unfortunate case, if my dad passed away. So things like, you know, power of attorneys and all that stuff, it's not like super exciting stuff, but someone needed to be here to do that. And so that's the reason why I actually picked up and moved to Vietnam, but I was only supposed to be here for like a year temporarily, then just ended up staying. So what made you stay in Vietnam? You know, I think you really grew up in Canada. It's pretty much your home. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the biggest reason why I stayed in Vietnam, honestly, was first off, I, I think I was going through a lot of personal things. You know, I had moved here with the intention that I would always go back. I can always resume my career. I could always resume anything. I was in a long-term relationship. I could always resume that. And obviously my friends were all back home. But when everything breaks down, right? Like when you realize that you don't want to work corporate anymore and I realized at some point, I was like, you know what? I can't, I can't go back to corporate life. I can't do this anymore. I realized that at the same time, you know, some of my key relationships back home actually broke down, including my long-term relationship. Then I realized, I was like, okay, you know what? I'm in no rush to get back. Let me just try to see if I like it here in Vietnam. And then, and then I started to kind of realize there were opportunities here. And then I started Equo. And then that basically has kept me staying in Vietnam. And then in the past year after like, you know, really getting the business solidified, at least a certain foundation for it, I realized that I actually liked living in Vietnam <laughs> after finally trying to live in this environment, not actually with the mindset of I was going to pick up and move any day. So yeah, I realized I really love it here. And so, so far it's, it's home for me. What's it like sort of moving to Vietnam and restarting your life? I think, you know, you have to make a lot of new friends. It's a totally new environment. You don't even know where to go to make friends, maybe, especially at, as an adult. You can't go to college and try to make friends with people. Yeah. So how did you yeah, navigate I, all of that? Oh, it, it was really tough. So I think I only started to really build my life here last year. Prior to that, like in 2019, 2019 mindset was, I'm just going to stay here a year. I'm going to pick up and move. So I wasn't really like trying to build roots here, you know, build forever friendships here or anything like that. 2020, 2021, I was just so busy building the business and it was the same mindset. I was like, I don't know when I'm going to go. So I didn't really make a lot of friends. You know, I didn't try to go out a lot. I didn't try to explore the city even, or even Vietnam. So my first three years here, I feel I kind of, I wouldn't say wasted, but I didn't I didn't really maximize trying to experience life here. So last year was the first time really trying to do that. And it was really tough at first. You know, it was tough saying, okay, you know, I'm going to live here. I got to make friends. And just like any place when you kind of pick up and move, you got to figure out, you know, who are the friends that you kind of meet for now and who are you going to be your lifelong friends? And so I just started going out a lot more, going to events and then meeting a lot more people, events work, but also just events that, you know, people would invite me out to. And that's something that people are really great about here is like they invite you to meet other people and you meet other people through other people. And it, it usually happens very naturally. And like, I have no qualms about it. I think like one thing I learned is as long as you're open to meeting people and open to kind of putting yourself out there, then you'll eventually find, you know, the people that you really, really drive with your friends forever. And so that it took about a good year for me to really find my group and find those friends that I would say are our lifelong friends. 
but it was, it was tough at the beginning. You know, it was, it's scary to do when you're an adult, especially. And as a solo founder, and you're also building throughout a really stressful time um, during the pandemic, how did you navigate sort of the founder loneliness and the challenges that come with being a founder, especially in your space? Mm. Well, I would say I, I did not navigate it well <laughs> at all. Like, <laughs> um, I, I was really bad at it. I basically just shut myself off to the world for about a year and a half. Shut myself off to the world. Like I said, didn't really make a lot of friends unless like um, I would say most of those friends were out of or those relationships at the time were out of convenience. Like I saw them every day for some reason. So I didn't really put myself out there. I, I didn't handle it well. I didn't get any sleep. <laughs> like I got three or four hours of sleep per day it was bad. All I thought about was work. And it kind of came to a head at one point when like I went to the doctor and they told me I had some heart issues. I had, um, you know, I was diagnosed with some like depression, anxiety. I, I was, I went through a bunch of those. I went through eating disorders. So uh, the short answer to that is I did not handle it well. <laughs> I did not navigate it well at all. It was only until I realized all that, that I started to find better ways to manage it. But I did not navigate it well. I did not navigate stress well. <laughs> and then how did you manage manage it? Like, what were the steps that you took afterwards? Did you change your diet? Did you start going to the gym? Did you find some resources? Yeah, I, I think that was probably the biggest thing is like, I, I started taking care of myself. You know, I was... Whenever I, I could at the time, I was like escaping wherever I could. So like I would be like, okay, let's go out and have a night and like, you know, drink and party and forget all my sorrows. Or I would just like, and then right after that, I would go back into the same habit. And I realized like in order to really maintain sustainable like activities for yourself so that you can do a business or whatever else for the long term, you got to really think long term. So I was like, okay, who am I hanging out with? Is this really what I want to do? Do I just want to escape every single weekend? Or do I want to kind of build relationships with people who will help me kind of build really great habits, like exercising all the time, you know, eating healthy, taking breaks away from like technology. And so I, I started to build, I think, relationships with people around myself that were of a similar mindset and trying to build a healthier lifestyle. The second thing is I kind of tried to shift my mindset at the time. And my mindset at the time was I have nothing left in life except for equal in my business. That's what I had before. I was like, I have nothing else going for me because I don't have relationships. I don't have friends. <laughs> I don't have anything else. I'm just focused on equal. I have nothing else going for me in, in my life. And I had to shift my mindset to say, you know, my business is great, but it's not the only thing I have left to live for. It's not the only thing that's going to make or break me. So that was a big shift. And then also, I think separating my identity from the business as well is something that I really learned how to do. A lot of times, I think founders, they think that they are synonymous with their business. Like, for example, Jeff Bezos, if he is Amazon, Amazon is him or whatever, right? A lot of us founders, we we think that with, without the business, we are nothing. We don't have anything else to offer to the world. And that's what I thought for a very, very long time. And so I had to shift my mindset and I had to talk to my friends and like even ask them like really, it sounds very sad or ridiculous questions like, hey, if I didn't have equal anymore, would you still be my friend? Would you still be in my life? You know, would you still think of me in the same way? And so shifting that mindset was how I've learned to manage things now. 
Were the friends that you have at the time, the friends that you had at the time, also people who were founders or working in tech, or did you actually find yourself gravitating more to people not in tech? A little bit of both, actually. You know, I think having some friends who are founders themselves or in tech or in the startup space, you know, they can understand a lot of what's going on. So I had some friends that are like that. And I still obviously have some friends like that. But I also have, you know, the friends who have nothing to do with space, don't understand it at all, and just see me. And those are some of my really good friends, too. So I think having a balance of both is helpful. And I think that's a better change because that was a better change than before when I had no friends. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> friends better than no friends. So. <laughs> yeah, you don't care what industry they're in as long as you had friends. <laughs> no, no. And, and like, as long as I think that they cared about me for me and, you know, cared about me, whether or not I had my business or not, or cared about like the person behind the business. I thought that was, I think that was something I was very, very scared of at first because I was holding on to the business as my identity. So I, I think I, I found those friends and, and I'm, I'm thankful that I have. <laughs> what were also like the early challenges, like outside being a founder, but from like running a business for the first time, because you were working corporate, you weren't, let's say, a CEO in another company before, even though you didn't found it. So what were the challenges in actually becoming a founder now and trying to build a business that actually makes money and you being the person that pushes for that? <laughs> yeah, I would say that like the biggest thing was just all the pressure, right? Because the pressure isn't just from like trying to make sure it's successful, but the pressure is like you're the one who has to think about everything, has to drive the vision, has to come up with it like yourself, right? And I think that's a lot of pressure for a lot of people who aren't used to doing that. I, I worked corporate, but at the same time, I had billion dollar companies backing me. Like if I made one tiny mistake, it wasn't going to bring the whole business down, right? But that's very different when you're running your own business. So I think the pressure was was really big. The second thing was just figuring out who you want to be in business with. You know, I, I realized that working corporations, they do kind of shelter you a lot of it from, from a lot of it, primarily because they have a HR process, you know, they usually vet everyone. And let's say even if like a bad apple goes through, like it's not like that one bad apple is going to ruin everything, right? But when you're starting a small business by yourself and you have one bad apple out of, let's say, three or five or even 15 people, it could just ruin the whole business or it can just really cause you a lot of headaches. So I had to deal with, I would say some, I, I don't even know a better word for it, but like scammers, fraudsters. Like I had to deal with people who lied about their resumes or their experience. I had to deal with people who, you know, said they would do one thing and did another. And like, it was, it was really tough. So trying to figure out who you want to be in business with, whether or not they're employees business partners or investors has been like kind of the biggest thing that I learned. And I think another thing I'm really curious about is like, how did you get started with working on equal because you had worked, you had worked in marketing. There was nothing there. At least I didn't see anything there that was related to the environment or related to plastic straws or anything of that nature. So how did you get into the space? I know that you mentioned that you were inspired by your nephew but it's one thing to get inspired and another thing to go and say, I'm going to start a business that helps solve this problem. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Before, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it right now, I was not sustainable at all. Like I didn't really, I just terrible to say, I didn't really think about the environment. 
you know, <laughs> I, I had no qualms about it, about, you know, using plastic. I never even thought about it, but really where it kind of started was like, you know, the time when I had no friends, <laughs> I went to- <laughs> <laughs> oh, it just sounds so sad when I'm saying it, but yeah, <laughs> like at the time I get you though, <laughs> you know what I mean, right. When you come to a new country and like, you're, you're trying to figure out how to make friends and stuff, like, it sounds sad, but it was true. I had no friends. I had no one to hang out with. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to go to a bunch of cafes because at least in Vietnam, there's a lot of cafes and I could spend my time there because I was living kind of in, in a place called District 6, which is like really far from the regular part of the city and like rural. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to come into District 1, the city part of uh, of Ho Chi Minh every single day. And I'm just going to stay, stay at cafes and maybe I'll meet people. Maybe I'll like you know, bump to someone. And it was like through my adventures at these cafes, I started to see like these sustainable straws in the drinks. And one time I saw like a green straw in my drink and I was like, what is this thing? Why have I never seen it before? So I started to kind of, I took a picture of it and then I started researching it. And then I asked the person, I was like, what is this made of? And they were telling me that it was like a grass straw. It was made from grass. And I was like, grass doesn't look like this. Like, what are you talking about? And then I had to look it up online. I was like, man, I am ignorant. Like, grass <laughs> not just flat and like short that we see in then like you know canada or the u.s grass here is like you know it can be long and like a tube and i was like oh that's really interesting so why is this not all over the place why is this not overseas this seems like a really great solution to plastic straws i've been seeing all this marketing about because you know there was that video of the turtle with a plastic straw on the nose that went viral right so I was like, this is a pretty simple solution. Why is no one thinking of this? And it was really just from there, like the curiosity of why this was not already on the market. And, and that's where like my thinking as a marketer came in. It's like curiosity of why it's not in the market. Why aren't consumers buying this more? That really kind of kickstarted everything. And then after that, I found the continued like inspirations later on of why I wanted to continue my business, one of which was my nephew. And then how did you get started? What were the first things that you did to set up your business? What did the first product look like? And who was your first customer? Oh, gosh. Okay, so how I kind of got started was I just started trying to get samples of every single type of sustainable straw on the market that I could find in Vietnam. So I went to like every place I could find and started collecting them. And I was collecting it with a friend at the time and trying to see, okay, where are all these straws coming from? Where are they made? And what different types are available on the market. So that was kind of the first step. And then the second step was like, okay, like if we're going to do this, right? Like what kind of company do we want to build? For myself, I was like, I, well, if we're going to build a company, I want it to have a great brand, you know, because that's my, my entire background, building brands and whatnot. But it was kind of weird because like this is in the category that you build brands in, right? Like no one can name right now, like, or most people can't really name a straw brand. So it kind of was like, okay, do you really want to do this? Do you want to try it out? And I was like, yeah, I mean, if I'm going to do this, I want a brand out there. I don't want to be a no name manufacturer. I don't want to just sell wholesale. No one knows the company. So we basically decided to, to test it out. And the best way to test it out was, okay, let's just go ahead and hire a designer get them to build the branding on the box and build the branding. I came up with the name just one day, just literally going on thesaurus.com, taking all the eco like friendly terms and trying to figure out how I can maybe spell it in a different way or, or something. And that's how eco came about. So 
and the, the name came about. So it sounds like eco or eco-friendly, but it's pronounced a different way, spelt in a different way, basically. And it's also kind of like to maintain the status quo. So like eco and status quo, you put them together, it's like equo. So that's how we came up with the name. Hire a designer who did packaging for like, you know, like one of my friends, like coffee shops, hired him to do the first iteration. And we're like, okay, cool. We have this now and let's go ahead and try it out. Let's try to find a packager that will build the packaging for us. So that's really how everything started. And then fast forward a few months after kind of doing that, I hired like my first employee who used to work with me at, I know, a previous company. And I said, hey, like I'm doing this project. Would you be interested in it? And she's like, yeah, for sure. And then we started working on it together and decided that we're going to launch it onto Kickstarter. So that's how everything kind of jump started. And then, so your first customers were from Kickstarter, I guess. Pretty much. Yeah, that was our, our, our big kind of like first foray into the market was on Kickstarter because all, I also didn't want to invest too much money into the business without kind of validating that people wanted it, right? So when we first launched it on the Kickstarter, we're like, okay, we're gonna have to spend some money on this, we'll spend some money on it, but it wasn't going to be like my life savings or anything, spend some money on it. And then basically from there, in the first three days, we sold $9,000 worth of straws. And, and that's straws. Like, yeah, straws. Straws, right? Straws. <laughs> I was like, it's $9,000 worth of straws, right? Like, I'm going to tell you right now, it's just, I think it's pretty amazing to sell $9,000 worth of straws. In three days. <laughs> three times 30 days. Like, it can be a pretty big business. It, it can be a million dollar business if I'm if I keep that, you know, traction kind of going. And so that's why I was like, this is pretty amazing. This is like with limited marketing investment and dollars and time. So that's what I I did for um, test out the market at first. And so Kickstarter was great. It was our first customers and we learned a lot from there too. One of my, like, one of the things I was binge watching a few months ago was Shark Tank in my free time. And I think one of the most popular products was like a sponge. Like it's the most unlikely thing, but I think it's their most popular product that still alive to this day and making a ton of money. So I think you really can't underestimate things like straws and sponges. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, like that, that sponge, I think it was like Scrub Daddy, I think is the one that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah. I actually wanted to buy one, even if it's in the <laughs> no, US, no. just because of how good it was. Yeah. <laughs> now they have Scrub have- Mommy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was amazing. It was like literally a happy face. The guy engineered a certain way and then he just branded it. And it's like, whoa, it's like the first, like, I, I mean, before that, I was like, I don't know any sponge brand, but he took something so simple that people said that, you know, no one would ever spend the time or money or effort on building as a brand. And he did it. And he's really successful. It's literally, like you said, the mo- one of the most successful Shark Tank products of all time. And he's really good at marketing it. So I think the thing that made me really like his episode was the way he described it. And I think it reminds me of like when I was watching some of your videos, they're always so entertaining when you're talking about equal. I feel like the one that I remember the most is when you hit the guy with a straw, but you didn't really hit him. It just looked like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's like um, what we were trying to do basically is, you know, learning from all these amazing inspirational brands before us and like from things around us is like, honestly, what we do every single day as people is like we market stuff, we sell stuff. And people don't really think about that. Like, for example, like, your favorite movie, 
you usually tell people, oh, this is my favorite movie because of this, 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 and it's amazing because of this. Like you're selling that movie to that person to try to get them to watch it or tell them at least why it was worth it. It's the same thing about kind of everyday items like the straw. And we're like, okay, how can we make people want this product and be entertained by it and try to think of it in a different way? And so that really was kind of our goal too, is to get people to think about it. Like that was the first thing is to actually get people to think about it. And the second thing is once they think about it, actually be entertained and captured enough that they want to actually purchase it. And I think like stepping out of the business, how do you like spend your downtime when you're not working? Is it dancing only or are there other things that you you do? I also sh- saw that you're doing like dance on a TV show. Like, I don't know how you can balance doing all those stuff <laughs> while running a business. <laughs> it's quite <laughs> impressive. <laughs> You know what? I'll say like Vietnam's quite interesting. Like things happen here and like that you would never, I think, or I feel like you would never have the opportunity to do like elsewhere. But yeah, I mean, like the dance show was just because like a friend of a friend of mine knew a producer and was like, hey, they're doing this show. You know, I, I think you'd be really great for it. Would you like to meet them? And then the meeting turned into like an audition and it was just like, yeah, so I mean, outside of regular work, I do enjoy dancing. And then every now and then I think like, you know, you have the opportunity to kind of share your passion with people. So like, I was very fortunate enough to get the opportunity to go on that dance show. Besides that, I used to play volleyball a lot. Like I'm a very like, you know, sports athletic person. I haven't had a chance to in a long time, but hopefully trying to start that again. And just honestly, just spending time with my friends, watching basketball. I like watching the Saigon Heat. <laughs> they're they're like a basketball team here in, in Vietnam. So watching basketball games and just exercising, Netflix, and playing video games. Like I used to be a big uh, gamer. <laughs> that was also what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a game tester when I was younger. And obviously my parents also shut that down too. They're like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> is that a real career and I was like you should look at it now it's a real career parents but yeah so I play video games in my spare time too <laughs> which video games so right now I am playing it's an old game but they, it got uh, transported over to the PS5 but Kingdom Hearts 3 so I'm a huge RPG fan Final Fantasy all that sort of stuff so Kingdom Hearts 3 is the one I'm playing right now And talking about Vietnam, since you have so many good things to say about it, if there's a person who is going to Vietnam for the first time, what would you recommend they do? And what would you recommend they eat? Like, is there a specific restaurant or a specific place to go? So first off, what I recommend them do is not go to the most common cities only. So, I mean, everyone knows Ho Chi Minh and they know Hanoi, but there's some amazing cities that are beautiful. Like there's Phu Quoc which is like kind of like, I would say like our Hawaii of Vietnam, like definitely go there. Da Nang, Nha Trang, Hoi An, these are all places that are a lot less well known to I think people outside of especially Southeast Asia, for the most part. Those are places that you should definitely explore because Vietnam has such a wide culture of, you know, different cities and different foods there. So that would be the first thing I would do is explore multiple cities, spend like, you know, two or three days in Hanoi, maybe two or three days in Ho Chi Minh, and then spend some days at those other cities because because Vietnam is gorgeous and beautiful and so different and diverse. And then the second thing is what to eat. So I'm not going to name the things that people commonly <laughs> know as Vietnamese food, like ben mi or pho or bong or like, which is like the noodle dish or gum 
broken rice, gum thumb, because people already know about those, I would recommend them to eat the other kind of less well-known things. So bomba is like a noodle, like, you know, beef dish. That's really good. There's benba too, which is also noodle and beef, but it's, it's really, oh, no, that's, sorry. Benba is this uh, dessert thing. And then there's bomba, another thing. Balalat, which is like this meat wrapped in this like beetle leaf. It's delicious. Uh, Bumcha. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm like naming everything, but there's all these dishes <laughs> that are not pho or not pho that, you know, people are commonly used to that you can eat. So please make sure you try everything. Try gun, which is our soup, you know, try like thumrium, which is our like a shrimp thing. Like try everything that's not just pho and the bending, please. That, that's what I would recommend. <laughs> if there's one thing people can eat in Hanoi, what would it be? And in what restaurant? Is there something you can recommend? In Hanoi, I mean, bong jia is like the biggest thing. That's like a really, really good thing that you should eat. I don't know if it's like, I, I don't know if it's like Hanoi only, but like, like there's different soups. So you can get ben gan kuo. That's more on like Da Nang or, or Hoi An, like the seaside, but you can get all these dishes everywhere. Ben de kuo is also really, really, really good. Those are not like Hanoi dishes, but they're more like Vietnam dishes that you can get anywhere, but that you should try, basically. <laughs> and then how about in Ho Chi Minh? What would you recommend? Mm. I, I don't know. Ho Chi Minh, same sort of thing. It's just like... Same sort of thing. But yeah, like Ben Gung, for example, you can have in Ho Chi Minh and in Hanoi, but they'll taste very different because like in the South, everything's a little bit sweeter. And then kind of in the north. Oh, cool. Yeah. And so like you'll you'll have the same dish, but it'll taste quite different. So you'll have pho, but it'll taste very different in, in Ho Chi Minh versus Hanoi. You'll have ben guong, which is like this rice paper wrap thing with like meat and vegetables inside. And it'll taste very different from, from like, you know, the south to the north too. So you can order the same thing, but try it like, you know, in different cities. What's your personal favorite restaurant where you are in Vietnam? Ooh, favorite Vietnamese restaurant? And like your go-to, yeah, and your go-to dish. Oh, okay. Oh, oh. That's a hard question. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> I would say my go-to restaurant, there's two of them. So one is just for like regular, really good Vietnamese family style food is a place called Wang Bui. Q-U-A-N-B-U-I. So they're like, they have a couple different stores, but it's like great, just Vietnamese food. And like even Vietnamese people go there. It's a nice sit down. You don't have to sit on a stool outside. <laughs> but it's a nice sit down restaurant. And you, I would say the things to order there is their soup. So they have a lot of different types of soup, but the favorite one I have there is called Ganjul, which is a sour soup with pineapples and tomatoes and usually has like fish in there. So that is like a must order dish and also the salted egg uh, shrimp. So it's really, really good there. It's basically like in the salted egg sauce and there's shrimp. So that's really, really good. So I would order that there. And then the second one is uh, a place called, <laughs> it sounds weird, but it's called One Ton Noodle 44. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's in District 4. But basically it's like a kind of tiny style dish, like wontons and like, you know, spoiled spare ribs and all these things, but Vietnamese style, because, you know, some of the Vietnamese cuisine is very influenced by Chinese cuisine. 
So that is a place you must go to. They're open from like 6 a.m. to like 1 p.m. And usually they run out of all the good stuff by like 10 or 11. So you have to go early in the morning and you also have to get their deep fried dough. So you put the deep fried dough inside the noodle soup that you get with everything. Oh, wow. Yes. It's amazing. It's carb heavy, but it's, it's amazing. And you have to get there early in the morning. And if you're only going to be in Vietnam for a short time, it's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> it is so, so, so good. So those two places are amazing places in Ho Chi Minh. And I guess like to wrap up, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask everybody who comes on for the podcast, which is outside of work, what is one thing you want to accomplish in your personal life? Whether that's something you want to accomplish this month, next year, or 10 years from now, what would it be? Uh, what I would want to accomplish is, it sounds very, very like boring, but I want to be able to take two weeks off <laughs> in terms of vacation. I haven't done that in a very long time, very, very long time. I just want to take two weeks off and I'd love to just go to like, you know, Japan and Korea and also on my bucket list in general is I want to go to Switzerland. That is like my ideal place to try to explore. So um, yeah, just, just traveling and kind of seeing some other places because, you know, COVID was, you were trapped for a while. So, and I always love traveling. So that would be my ideal is take two weeks off, go to Japan, go to Korea again, go to Taiwan, and then also to Switzerland, which I've never been to before. So that's two weeks each at different times. <laughs> uh, probably not, Hopefully. Like, not realistic, but yeah. But let's, let's say we're going to do that. <laughs> let's be optimistic. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Marina. I learned so much about you. And this is super fun. Yeah. It was definitely not wrong when I read that you were very fun to, to talk to and very easygoing. <laughs> well, thank you so much. You made it really, really easy. Like, it was a... A nice, you know, relaxed environment. It's nice to talk about things other than business sometimes. So. <laughs>